So we're going to jump into John 15. We've been there for a little bit. And what we've looked at is Jesus laying out this depiction of what passionate followers of His look like. He talks about people who love as He loves, who obey His commands, who abide in Him. People say who connected to Him, who obey His Word. Who are joyful, who glorify the Father. These are the depictions He gives us. And and we talked about the, the vast difference between that result and where we begin outside of Christ is being controlled by our sinful desires. And really it's the work of the Holy Spirit, it's the work of Christ in us to change us from one description progressively towards the other. And when we're asking, how do we do this? Jesus lays out this simple concept of of abiding in Him. And He uses this illustration of a vine and branches. And He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me, whoever remains connected to Me, it's Him that bears much fruit. But if you're disconnected, He says, apart from Me, you can do nothing. And so all the resources, all the strength, all the power in spiritual walk that leads to maturity comes from Jesus and is by His working in us. It's not necessarily our own efforts except our effort to abide in Him. So we promised to try to dig into what it means to abide in Him. And last week, uh, John Hattenberger gave an exceptional message on what it means to abide in God's Word. To remain in it, to I think he said to, to hear it, to read it, to teach it, to preach it, to live it, to obey it. All of these things. To let it permeate us and transform who we are. I want to encourage you to listen to that if you haven't uh, had a chance to on our podcast or from our website. Today we, we, we dig into a different kind of twist on what it is to abide in Christ. If you go to John chapter 15, we're going to begin at verse 9. In verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know his ma- what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, so that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask... The Father in my name, He may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus begins by describing the reality that we should love one another. And then He sets Himself as the example of love. Describing the greatest act of love as someone who would lay down their life for another. And from this we learn immediately that that this kind of love that Jesus is calling us to express one to another is a sacrificial love. It's a love that sees the good of the other over and above ourselves. If you think of Jesus every moment on the earth, none of it was for His own benefit. Jesus existed eternally as part of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect glory, 
experiencing unending fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit and unceasing praise of the angels. And he walks away from that, sets aside some of his, the exercise of some of his power and becomes a baby. He grows, goes through puberty and pimples and high school and all of that nonsense so that he can one day walk to a cross and die on our behalf. None of that was awesome for him. Like, I, I doubt he's, he was up there in heaven pre-incarnate saying, you know, um, ninth grade looks like fun. You see that kid getting picked on? Uh, who's got no money and he likes a girl but he doesn't know how to say anything, I'd like to see what that's like. No. Christ comes down to earth for our benefit, for our good, to the point that he died for us. He tells us that's no greater love than this, that you would lay down your life for another. Now this theme of sacrificial love is repeated again in Romans chapter 12 as the scriptures describe to us how we should deal with one another in verse 9. It says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So Jesus has told us now that you should love one another. And he sets an example for us of love, saying it's, it's a sacrificial thing where you give for the good of the other and you place your needs and your desires beneath them. And then in Romans 12, begins to define love for us. Be, because there's this weird thing going on in Western culture where we don't know what love means. For example... If someone you love is running off the edge of a cliff and about to die, and you yell, stop, you're going to kill yourself, we would say, that's loving, right? But when someone is making another life decision that's equally destructive, and we say, stop, don't do that, you're judgmental and hateful. Now now think of this. Someone walking towards their own destruction... And someone who deeply cares for them cries out and says, don't go there. You don't know what you're walking into. That person now is no longer loving, but hateful based upon American definitions of love. Which I believe the only appropriate response to anything under that definition of love is, good job, high five, keep going. And so when Jesus in Romans 12 defines love for us, a component of that is hating what is evil. So that when we see our children running and playing in the street, we we don't just say, hey guys, have fun, maybe you can catch the next car. What we do is we grab them and we drag them back and we talk to them. And if they do it again, it's not a talk. There's discipline that happens. Why? Because we love them. A required component of love for it to be genuine is to hate evil is to see sin in our own lives and the lives of those we care for, and to call it what it is. Because if I allow you to destroy yourself and say nothing, I am complicit with you. That's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 20, when he looks back on his time with the church at Ephesus, says, my hands are clean from your blood, because I've proclaimed the whole word of God to you. He said, I didn't shrink back from anything. 
Even when it was difficult, even when it was offensive, even when it was hard, we said what God's word was. But notice Romans 12 doesn't mention dying for another like Jesus does. It points out the reality of living for the other. Which when we think of Jesus' perfect life, we can't skip over that. We talk a lot about how Jesus died for us. And and that's significant. It's the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. But it's only efficient and effective for our salvation because of the way He lived for us. Because His life was perfectly righteous. So He lived for us and He died for us. And the command of Scripture is that we should love in that way. Notice that Romans 12 doesn't just command what we do, but how we feel. It says, you should love one another in brotherly affection. Now, now these are not actions, right? Now, love leads to action and activity, but he, he commands an affection, a disposition of the heart. Now, many of us would say, well, that's hardly fair. I mean, I can't control how I feel. I can control what I do, but I I can't control how I feel. And and that's where submission to the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus transforming our heart and us crying out to Him, us abiding in His Word so that the Spirit has ammunition to work on our wretched hearts becomes important. So Jesus defines love for us as hating what is evil, Being constant in prayer, holding fast to the truth, showing hospitality to one another. When we think of Jesus' example, He taught the truth, He corrected, He healed, He fed, He served. Not just one-sided, but there was an edge to it where, where He would call sin what it was, but then offer grace for those who were repentant. So, Jesus tells us to love one another. Now what I want you to think about is this depiction of love. And and ask, can I love someone in this way from a distance? Can I love someone in this way from arm's length? Because His commandment to the disciples, to all believers, is that we love one another in this way. And I want to be honest with you, it's virtually impossible for us to do that in two hours on a Sunday morning. I mean, we could be extremely polite to one another. And that's a good start. We could do things like getting here early and taking a parking spot that's further out so that someone else has a chance. We could do things like sitting in the front row so that our friends who are late um, might be able to get a better seat. Uh, We could do things like showing up on time so that we're not disturbing the service that's already in progress. There's all sorts of small things we could do to show deference to one another. And that's good. But you can't fully complete this gathering on Sunday morning for worship. So there's got to be more to it. We'll go to Hebrews and then we'll come back to John. In Hebrews chapter 10. The Scriptures begin to tell us about this loving one another and how it works in our relationships. In verse 24, it says, Let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some have the habit, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, here's what he says. As the time rolls by, 
and the distance between the resurrection of Christ and the moment that you are in gets longer and the proximity to Jesus' return gets shorter, continue to meet, gather to encourage one another, gather to remind each other of the grace of God. And and then he says this, consider how to show brotherly love to one another. Consider it. How to stir one another up to good works. So plan. Think about how you can do this in the life of someone else that you know that you walk with, that that you go to Bible study or life group with. Consider how you can stir them up to good works. How you can serve them in that way. And Hebrews chapter 3 tells us this a little plainer. In chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long it is called to, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So our interaction with each other is to be daily encouragement, as long as it is called today. Which is a nice poetic way of saying, every day, encourage one another. Encourage one another towards faithfulness in Christ, towards rejecting sin, because there's a constant kind of risk that our hearts will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because sin offers promises of joy and pleasure that in the end are empty and lead to destruction. But we're all prone to them, to believing them. So encourage one another. Daily. As long as it is called today. This is Jesus' command for us. Now, it's important to think when, when Jesus tells us to love one another in this way, it's not just some kind of pithy statement. It, it has significance, weight, and purpose. Jesus tells us that when we obey His commands, that there is joy in them. That putting the needs of the other in front of ourselves leads to the fullness of our joy. That obedience to God's Word leads to the fullness of our joy. And in John 13 and in John 17, Jesus describes a larger goal for this way of interacting. In verse 34 in John 13, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the purpose to which He's commanding this. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, go to John 17. Now, John 17 is not Jesus teaching His disciples. It's Him praying to the Father and pleading for His followers that God would work within them towards a particular end. And I want you to see it beginning in verse 11. So as Jesus prays, He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept your, kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and have not let one of them have, and have not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Look at verse 20 now. I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So so Jesus talks about a, a few things here in John. He talks about our connectedness to one another and to Him and to God the Father. He says they're connected. And then He provides a bit of the purpose to which we're to love one another in this way. So that the world may believe that He has sent us. That the believability of the Gospel, according to Jesus, hinges on our loving one another sacrificially. It, it hinges there because Jesus says, look, if this doesn't happen, the implication is the world won't believe that I've sent you because you don't love as I have loved. If you're truly His disciple, it's a, it's a question to ask, does your life at least in some way line up with the life of the one you follow? And so Jesus says, look, the, the purpose of this is bigger than you just gathering together and really having a good time and getting warm, fuzzy feelings. It's much bigger. It's about the world understanding that Jesus is the only Son of God who died to take away our sin and rose again. That He is the only Savior. He says that message is believable when my people who I have cleansed, who I have drawn out of sin, begin to live with one another in a way that demonstrates the very sacrificial love I gave them through my life and death on the cross. If we fight, bicker, mistreat one another, the gospel is simply not believable when we preach it. Why? Because when we talk about the transforming power of God's grace through Jesus Christ and there's no evidence of transformation, who wants to buy that? I mean, who believes that to be true? So Jesus commands us to love one another so that the gospel will advance. Because if we don't, the story is not believable. Now, it's easy to begin to look at these commandments, these words from Jesus, and to begin to get into relationships with one another and accidentally distort what Jesus is trying to do. So I want to just for a moment look at what I think the kind of the top four distortions of this kind of loving one another as Jesus has called us to love hard. People get in these groups with other Christians. They begin to, I think, genuinely try to care for one another. But the first kind of way people get off base is what I call the all-fine group. Everything's fine. They're kind of like the modern-day equivalent to the Cleavers. Or if you grew up in the 90s, uh, the Tanners from Full House. Um, But in in any event, these families have have problems, but they're minor, and you can solve them in a 30-minute episode. 
Everything's better. I mean, Uncle Joey and DJ, they become friends again, and the twins are cute. They say something funny. Kimmy Gibbler comes over and is ridiculous. Everyone laughs, and the family's fine again. Or Wally and the Beave make up, and, and life is good. See, the, the problem is that that's just, it's a sitcom. And it's not real. Groups like this, everyone's okay all the time, and prayer requests consist of your great aunt's cat being sick. There's no confession of sin because we're fine. Everything's fine. Hey, guys, it's okay if everything's fine, but just know that that's usually not the case. Not when you get six families together. Usually someone's not okay. See, the problem with this group is that they've convinced themselves that that because of what Jesus has done for them, they should be one place and they're not, and so they just put up the front. This is okay. I know I should be uh, this mature, but I'm not. But if I pretend it, everyone will believe, and they won't think less of me. I- except the very first statement of the gospel is to proclaim that we are all utterly and completely wicked. Like no one be sh- should be surprised to find out that sin has wreaked havoc in your life or your family. That's the first kind of premise of the gospel. So to find out that someone wrestles with sin or that, that, that someone in their family is in drug rehab or, or this or that or any of these things that we would just want to keep to ourselves should be baseline for us of what we expect from one another. We're all sinners being transformed by God. The all-fine group in a desire to, to not burden each other ends up missing the boat and ends up accidentally denying the very premises of the gospel that we're all sinful in need of redemption. Now, the kind of polar opposite is what I'd call the don't judge me group. See, the all fine group doesn't admit to sin, and the don't judge me group doesn't want to to deal with sin. They want to be the Christians that are really cool, uh, and that everyone else in the world would like, and in, in, in that pursuit, they become just like the world. Sometimes the don't judge me group takes on a group therapy feel, except there's never a solution provided. And these people will come to the group so long as it doesn't address any of their sin and they don't have to move past it. So if they want to feel good about themselves, they'll come. And two things kind of cause people in this group to disengage. One is, by God's grace, somehow they begin to overcome that sin and they don't want to be around it. Or two, someone calls them on. Anyway, there's no desire, there's a pursuit for God, but we're all happy where we are. And don't say anything about it. The third group is, is a little less sinister. It's what I call the Friends Forever group. And they play the Michael W. Smith song repeatedly during their gatherings. That's a bad song. How did it ever even get published? I'm sorry if you like it. Oh. My mom really tried to get us to listen to him a lot growing up. Now, this group, they're nice. I think they genuinely love the Lord, and they genuinely love these other people, sort of. And so in the Friends Forever group, we hang out. And our commitment is that things are going to be this way forever. It's like high school, except that high school ended. There's no yearbooks at the Friends Forever group, but they've thought about it. And here's their goal. We're going to hang out with each other because it's safe and we can share our problems and our burdens with one another. And our friends like each other. And they're going to grow old together and if we're lucky, we can arrange marriages between them. 
Here's the problem. That group hasn't embraced any sense of mission. And to be honest, that group doesn't really love each other well. Because if I really loved you, I would want you to experience the fullness of joy that comes with walking with Christ in mission. And so I would let you go. Now, I understand a tendency to this group because we've gotten through this church to interact with some amazing people that, to be honest, we would love to keep around. Like, we would just love to hang out with all the time because they love the Lord. Their passion for the Lord is so obvious. And it's a, it's a recharge just to have dinner with, with some of these families. But here's the problem. The reason that we love them, the reason that we, that we enjoy them so much is the very reason they can't stay. Because their passion for Christ and the gospel is what pushes them to reach out to other people. And if we love them, we send them. We don't hold on to them. Now the fourth group, who's my favorite, and maybe kind of walk you through a little bit of educational history. Um, There was a time period at schools when no one cared about anyone's self-esteem. Right? Like you failed, you failed. You'd be 17 in third grade. They didn't care. <laughs> we got some clapping. That's the one guy who was. He was like, yeah. I was the biggest kid in third grade the eighth time. Um, so so they, they didn't care about any of that stuff. And, and so then kind of some theories started to creep in about, hey, kids learn better if we, if we watch out for their self-esteem. Like, like if we grade with green ink instead of red, it doesn't feel as threatening when the paper's marked up. And one of the things that came out of that was what we call the GT program, which is gifted and talented. And in the GT class, what they do is they, they took all the smart kids out and they put them in this class and they left the rest of us over here. See, it used to just be like in reading that we had the bluebirds and the redbirds, which in El Campo, when you're the rice birds, you want to be a redbird. And, and if you're one of the bluebirds over here, you, you, I mean, we're kind of like chewing on the book because none of us can read. Um, I was a bluebird. Uh, and so what they do, right, we take all the smart kids and we put them over here in GT and we leave all the regular... So like the, the smart kids, like they're, they're taking like physics and college algebra in ninth grade and the rest of us, we got like counting. <laughs> That's math-ish. All right, so, so I want to just tell you this, making fun of that, we have the GT group in Christianity. They're the gifted and talented ones. And just like the GT group in elementary, they don't want to be around the rest of us who chew on the pencils and eat the glue because that's kind of obnoxious. Like they don't want to have to explain what what words like eschatology mean, which by the way just means what happens when this whole thing comes to an end. They don't want to have to describe um, in detail to someone who doesn't understand systematic theology or, or biblical language or who we say turn to Third John and they're like, where is that? Like we, we don't want anybody in our Bible study that slows it down because in order to get there, they have to look at the table of contents. And so we got the GT group, and they're all really, I'm going to put this in finger quotes if you're listening online, mature. And they're only mature because they've redefined maturity in some way that Jesus is opposed to. Because here's what's kind of crept in with the GT mentality, is that biblical literacy and a relatively moral life are equal to spiritual maturity. 
Can I tell you the most biblically literate, moral people by a human standard in the history of the world were the Pharisees. And they wanted to kill Jesus. I think wanting to kill Jesus is a sure sign of spiritual immaturity. When God shows up and you say, get a rope, that's immature. Biblically literate, relatively moral, completely immature. And by a lack of a desire to disciple immature Christians, the GT group betrays their complete immaturity. That they're not mature Christians. Now, what's the problem with these groups? I mean, we can make fun of them. Some of us going, I'm kind of in that group. Here's the central thing. Jesus calls us to love one another sacrificially, right? So that the world will believe the message that he is the only son of God. And all of these groups in some way or another, are not gospel-centered, but have become self-centered. They're not about the gospel advancing as sinful people are transformed. They're not about the gospel advancing as we make new disciples. They're about us enjoying some kind of a Christian culture that in the end makes us feel good about us. The gospel has historically advanced through the suffering of men and women willing to go endure hardship. In the last few weeks, uh, since we did a little trip, uh, just Leisha and I, in New York City, and we went to Ellis Island, and we got curious about family history, just being there, hearing how many people would come through there. And so I, uh, you know, shelled out about 15 bucks to the Mormons and joined Ancestry.com um, and started looking into a family history. And what we found is if you go up on my dad's side a few generations, which is quite interesting, you have alternating generations between like horse thieves and preachers. And it just, it's really strange. Next generation, I'm worried about my kids. <laughs> we, we find this guy, my dad's great-grandfather named Daniel Shipman, who, who he was a preacher, he was a Baptist preacher, and he just moved kind of westward as expansion happened. And he moved into Arkansas in, in like 1818. And, and, and the family record and the kind of the history of of, of kind of frontier Arkansas, says that, that Daniel Shipman, over a course of one year, walked more than 1,200 miles from little canebrake communities, one to the other, preaching the gospel. Right? A married man with kids, who, who didn't even have enough money for a mule, was walking 1,200 miles to go preach in little bitty gatherings and start little bitty churches so that there would be a gospel presence in some community. Now, I want you to think about that. All of us came to faith in Christ because of men and women like that. Men and women who were willing to die for things like translating the Bible into English. you realize that, that the first men who did that were killed? And even where there wasn't official persecution, the, the people who came across the Atlantic with treacherous conditions to preach the gospel as the frontier expanded out, did that at the threat of their own lives. Most of them died before they reached 45 years old so that the gospel could spread westward across this country. And, and, and think about this. 
A gospel that advances with such great sacrifice, with men and women willing to endure hardship, comes to people like us, and we decide some way to kind of twist and pollute it where it becomes about us, and we take the sacrifice and the advancement of it out. But that's how the gospel advances. Through people being willing to sacrifice, to love one another, to put each other's needs over their own. So things like moving where you sit or where you park or showing up on time, these are nominal. These are so small. It should be easy. Things like hosting some people in your house so you can pray with them. And this is little. So when we talk about abiding in the people of God. I want you to think through this. Jesus has said it's the key to the advancement of the gospel. The key. More than that, all these commands in John 15 about going and bearing fruit. Every verb in John 15 is, a, is an imperative second person plural. So he's saying, you go bear fruit. You love one another. But he's not saying you. It's a collective thing. In Texas, it'd be y'all. All of you together bear fruit. All of you together love one another. It's a command for us. Not just as individuals, as a part of the whole, but to define the whole. What it's like to be a Christian. Is that we abide with one another, that we consider how we'll stir each other up to affections for Christ, that, that we gather and encourage each other constantly. This is begin to lay out a vision for the church that isn't about cool programs or meetings on Sunday morning, but it's about a people committed to following Christ and inviting other people to follow Him as well and making new disciples in this place and around the world. So this is where we come to something. Hebrew tells us to consider how we're going to do that, which implies we step back, think about it, and maybe make a plan. So I want to share with you, and you're going to hear details here in a moment, the plan here at our church to begin to consider how we're going to do this. How we're going to love each other in this way. How we're going to look out for the needs of other and stir one another towards good works and affection. We've established this isn't possible just here. To be honest, this can't happen in a Sunday school class. Not really. Because if you'll notice, here and in almost every Sunday school class you've been to, you sit shoulder to shoulder with people, generally not eyeball to eyeball. And you generally heard something that was good, biblical truth, but you didn't generally respond to it in a way that anyone else could encourage you, pray for you, or hold you accountable. So here's the plan. What we're asking of life groups is to begin meeting weekly. To focus on praying for one another, on applying the Scriptures. So as we teach through the Scriptures on Sunday morning, we're asking groups to take a discussion guide that we've made and begin to dig into the Scriptures further with a focus on application. And what am I going to do with what the Scriptures have said this week? How am I going to live? How does this change me? And then in that environment, there's accountability, right? There's, there's people who say, okay, well, you, you committed to live in this way, to, to make this change, and, and maybe you've got this severed relationship that you're going to go and ask forgiveness about, or this individual that you work with, or your neighbor that you want to tell the gospel to. And then people can pray for you as you do that. 
So you have support and encouragement and accountability all kind of bundled in there as we work to apply the scriptures together. See, we've identified a disciple-making process where people have their own responsibility of of abiding in Christ. That's what we have to do personally. And then the church has got some responsibilities too. Related, It's an acronym team. Teaching, the communication of gospel truth. Equipping, understanding how to apply and live out the truth that's been communicated. Accountability. Where people follow up and say, how did that go? Did you do that? They will pray for you. They will encourage you. Modeling. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That much of what we learn in the Christian faith is just as much caught as it is taught. I've gone through numerous classes on personal evangelism. And and, and they were helpful. But you know, probably the biggest thing for me was developing close relationships with some guys that were passionate about evangelism who would ask me, did you share the gospel with that guy at work this week? You had the chance, I know. Did did you do it? And seeing them live that way, that's transformative. So modeling. And then multiplication. That this thing doesn't end until we've made new disciples because that's Jesus' command. Go and make disciples of every nation. So that this thing grows and multiplies. This is how the Gospel advances. Christians committed to the Lord... Committed to grow in maturity. People committed to help others grow and together to reach the world. There is no other plan. Not from Christ. That's what we've been given. And the whole thing hinges, according to Jesus, the believability of the message hinges on how we love one another. That's at the heart of it. Later on, you have the opportunity to hear more about life groups to get connected. And you may be already in relationships like that. But as leaders, we've got to consider how we're going to do this. But it's simply not a believable message if we don't commit to love one another. And I'd like to shift for just a moment and talk. If you're in this room and you're a non-believer, maybe you showed up to church today and you've had some negative experiences with church. And you hear this message and you hear, yes, yeah, see, it's not believable. I, I want to just say to you that as Christians, we fall short constantly. There's always going to be a little bit of hypocrisy in Christianity because we believe something to be true. God establishes moral perfection for us and we say that is true, yet because of our sinfulness we all fall short even on our best efforts. My encouragement to you, is, a, is if you're not a Christian and you say, yeah, that's what turned me off, is that it doesn't have to be that way. And part of loving one another the way Christ has is showing grace. Showing grace to the person who doesn't love well. And loving them well in spite of the fact that they don't. And so I want to invite you into that grace too, because Jesus has extended it to you. And for each of us, let this be an opportunity to restore relationships that are broken. To mend relationships with other Christians. To demonstrate love. Because Jesus says, by the way we love one another, the world will know that he has sent us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your tremendous grace to us. 
that by your Spirit you've drawn us to your Son, Jesus, who has saved and redeemed us, who has then sent His Spirit to empower us and strengthen us and has connected us to Him so that we have everything we need for life and godliness and given us this great command to love one another as You have loved us. Lord, I pray that You would... Lord, that you would just touch our hearts with an affection for that this morning, with a desire to love one another sacrificially in small ways and in big ways. But that in each of us, there would be this this constant kind of consideration, as Hebrews tells us, to consider how we can spur one another on towards good works. We pray that you would do that work in our church so that the gospel would advance, so that many would be drawn to salvation through us, and we would get the great joy of celebrating with the angels in heaven when sinners repent and turn to you. Lord, we pray for those today who are gathered with us who would say, I'm not a Christian, I don't know Christ. We pray that your spirit would be at work in them, showing them the reality of their sin, that they stand judged before you, deserving of eternity in hell, but that in your grace you sent your only son to endure the punishment that they deserve. And you've called them freely through faith. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in such a way to to draw them to you, to open their eyes, to see the beauty of that message, and to trust your Son and Him alone. And Lord, we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.